Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 412 of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have with me Philip Urofsky. Philip is a partner at Sherman & Sterling, and he talks about the 2019 Sherman & Sterling FCPA Digest. First, have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't have an idea of how to do so? Well, check in with a word from our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this podcast, I go into the highlights of the Sherman and Sterling 2018 FCPA Digest, and Philip and I talk about the Hoskins decision, how it may impact FCPA enforcement and investigations going forward. It's a fascinating exploration of one of the uh, year's annual top FCPA reviews. Looking back and looking forward, I know you will enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and today uh, you are in for a real treat uh, because today I have with me Philip Urofsky. Philip is a partner at Sherman and Sterling, and they have released the one of the true uh, gems of each year is the Sherman and Sterling FCPA Digest. Digest. They recently released the 2019 Digest, and it's chock full of everything you would want to know about the uh, past year on FCPA. So, Philip, with that somewhat long-winded introduction, uh, first of all, welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Uh, you're welcome. Always a joy. And uh, once again, just uh, thank you and the firm for putting this out. It's a resource that I have on my uh, bookshelf uh, uh, every year, and I know a lot of uh, compliance practitioners and lawyers do as well. So thank you and your firm for your incredible work on this. Well, again, you're welcome. And before we get started, if I could just give a plug for our brand new FCPA uh, website, which has the online digest so you can search for cases as well as copies of the uh, the trends and patterns and other materials. Well, great. We'll link to that in our show notes, Philip. Um, I, I would say that this past year was unique in the FCPA world, but after about 12 years of practice in this area, I've finally come to the conclusion that every year stands on its own. So uh, why don't we just uh, start off with maybe looking at uh, what were your, your or the firm's highlights on some of the numbers? Well, it was a it was an up and down year. I mean, if you had asked me in May what, what was going on, I would have said there's very, very little activity. And then uh, in the summer, it got very active uh, as, as the DOJ, for instance, released four you know, significant cases in, in a span of two months. And then it got quiet again until, of course, the last week of December when they announced a few more uh, cases. So it's been an up and down. But if you look at it as a year, it's about the same as it has been in other years. There were uh, 17 corporate enforcement actions. Um, the penalties, if you look at the penalties, the they were it's the second highest year, I think, ever for FCPA enforcement. But that, as has been in the case in some other years and where, where they had high penalties, distorts the, the story to some extent. I mean, if you take out the outliers, the highest, the, the biggest case uh, cases, which were well above the rest, and the smallest cases, which were well below the rest, 
you wind up with a, uh, a, a median or um, average sanction of about 18 million, 17.9 million, uh, where if you include the outliers, you have 170.8 million. So this is consistent with what we've seen before. Generally, what we see for FCPA enforcement actions is are fines and penalties and disgorgement all taken together in the range of 10 to 25, 30 million dollars. And that's exactly where they've been uh, for years now. Uh, and so in terms of the number of cases, um, it, it, it's, it's pretty pretty average. Uh, there's perhaps a slight weighting this year toward SEC cases over DOJ. Um, and the SEC cases tend to be smaller in, in the amount of sanctions. But the SEC was also part of those bigger cases as well, some of those bigger cases. So one of the things that I found really interesting this year, Philip, and you hit it on it there at the end, is on the SEC cases, I find these uh, in many ways uh, actually more instructive for the compliance practitioner because the SEC puts in its uh, cease and desist orders more detail around the uh, whether not only what the bribery schemes were, but how controls were overridden or um, information that compliance practitioners can really use to either benchmark against their compliance programs or uh, uh, put in uh, put enhancements into their compliance programs. Is that something that uh, you guys would have observed as well? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I sometimes criticize, and uh, and I hear this from my friends at the SEC. I sometimes criticize the SEC for overreaching to uh, to reach and charge an anti-bribery count when they don't need it. But where I do find that they have, <coughs> excuse me, where they have, you know, useful and 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 generally well-supported allegations is in the compliance area. When you see things, uh, when you see cases. That, it, that really tell you where the company in the SEC's eyes went wrong. Um, you know, uh, examples would be, for instance, in something like uh, the Kinross case or something like uh, where, where it was a uh, M&A case. And according to, the, you know, the government, the company knew or learned through the its due diligence that uh, the uh, you know the, com- the the company they were acquiring simply had inadequate and ineffective controls in the anti-corruption area, but didn't do anything after the acquisition. And despite you know several reports and notice uh, you know from internal audit, until it just became too big to ignore. And uh, you know that kind of activities you know contrary to the kind of advice that you and, and I and most of our colleagues probably give companies who are in the midst of an M&A case, which is if you see something, if you see even, even if you don't see allegations or specific violations, which is an entirely different story, but if you just see inadequate controls, you need to be prepared on day one. You have to have your day one integration plan to get in there and be able to demonstrate to the government you know, that you you saw you, you saw the red flags. You identified them. You know you you remediated them as soon as you took over the company, and and that gives you a, a pretty strong leg up when you're talking to the government about violations down the road uh, that crossed over the uh, the time of the acquisition. The um, uh, let's go to some of the substantive decisions, and and one I've really wanted to visit with you about is the Hoskins decision. Um, whether or not you agree or disagree with uh, the court's reading on Hoskins, I absolutely agree with uh, 
that it has the potential to alter um, the scope of FCPA prosecutions. Where that alteration is, though, I think, at least in my mind, is an open question. How do you guys see Hoskins? I think Hoskins is a very complicated case from a couple different uh, uh, perspectives. But I think, you know, it's interesting because they charged it in so many different ways that they almost had to stumble over themselves in in figuring out what they were going to prove or or trying to convince the court what they were going to prove at trial. And, you know, if you start with the DD3, with the section of the FCPA that was added in, in 98, as a, a way to reach non-U.S. persons, it has a fairly strong territorial jurisdictional language that is often glossed over in settlements. And this is why cases against individuals become so interesting, because individuals have, have, you know, uh, have skin in the game. They're going to go to jail, or at least they, they're likely to go to jail, and they're more likely, therefore, to challenge a, a, the government's theory where uh, you know, where a corporation might not, where a corporation might might be, uh, you know, willing to to just move forward and, and get it over with in some ways. Um, and so here, you know, the language that we, that we put in to the to the section DD three in ninety eight when when we recommended to the Congress to amend the uh, amend the FCPA to implement the OECD convention, specific, you know, inc- you know, lifted the language from the previous sections on interstate, uh, you know, use of interstate uh, uh, instrumentalities, but it also said while in the territory of the United States or to take any other action while in the territory of the United States. And there's a statutory issue there is, is the first clause separate from the second clause, but the court clearly didn't see it that way. And this calls into question a whole bunch of theories that the government has used to bring cases against foreign uh, companies. Uh, because very often the the theory is causing something to happen in the United States. So if, for instance, a foreign bank, uh, you know, or a foreign company transfers money to another foreign person, but it goes through a correspondent bank in New York, you know, there's a, which is a theory that has been alleged back since Siemens. I think Siemens may have been the first case where it was alleged as, as one of the grounds for jurisdiction, but it's been used fairly regularly since, sometimes in isolation. That theory seems to be somewhat questionable at this point, notwithstanding, uh, you know, a one district court uh, case that held in a civil context that that was just a jurisdictional point, as opposed to an element of the crime. But if, if, if in fact, being the company or the person has to be in the United States when they do whatever they do in furtherance of the foreign uh, bribery. This, the Hoskins case could very much, you know, knock out that part, that idea that correspondent account banking is an act while in the United States. Or if you look at the Magyar Telecom case, that a email that passed through a server in the United States from one foreign person to another foreign person Again, is that an act while in the United States by those persons? So I think that it definitely it has a significant uh, possibility of narrowing the ability to bring cases under DD3 against foreign persons. The other aspect, of course, of a Hoskins is the issue of under DD2, where you know he is a par- he acts he is an employee of the parent foreign parent, but he's charged as an agent of the subsidiary. And that, to me, 
is not as silly as some commentators have suggested it is. It really is going to depend on the facts there. You know, it, it, corporate structures are complicated, but the real question is going to be is whatever he did, did he do it, you know, for the benefit of the, of the subsidiary in a way that you can, that the government can prove to the jury's satisfaction and ultimately the court that he acted as the, as the subsidiary's agent you know, there is not the same jurisdictional requirements as in DD3. So I had the chance to visit with a, a former uh, fraud section prosecutor on this case. Well, and I asked, a former uh, fraud section prosecutor <laughs> also. All right. Well, that, that, that makes – that's great. And, and I asked her, I said, what would be the law uh, – I mean, typically agent-principal uh, relationship is a state law question. And if there's no federal law on that, would it be the law of the circuit – uh, that would make that determination. And if that's correct, could we have 11 different um, legal uh, precedents in 11 different circuits? Yes, I think the answer could to that could be yes. There, um, the, 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 there's no definition in the FCPA as to what an agent is. But the DOJ has historically not taken agent to mean the, you know, to, 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 to apply the narrowest technical definition of agent uh, they 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 apply a rule of agent in fact as opposed to an appointed agent. So similarly to the if you're talking about corporate liability, I'm not sure it's going to make that much difference because um, in that case where where you talk about a person who's acting within the scope of their duties and for the uh, at least in part for the benefit of the corporation, I think it's it's a hard uh, if, if the person is acting for your benefit, I think. Generally, the DOJ is not going to – they may lose at court if, if you go to court, but I, I don't think that they're going to take a particularly technical view of what an agent is in that context. Of course, if you're the individual being charged as the agent, absolutely would expect them to make that argument. Um, so you also note, in addition to the decision having the potential at least alter the scope of FCPA prosecutions – that it potentially could alter the scope of the investigative process. Would that include the internal investigative process as well? I don't know that any of this is going to change the internal investigative process, quite frankly. I mean, these kind of decisions, are you an agent? Did you do an act within the territory of the United States, while in the territory of the United States? If you're a corporate compliance officer or a general counsel faced with an or an audit committee member faced with an allegation that someone associated with the company in some way might have done something wrong, jurisdiction isn't going to be, you know, your deciding factor. Uh, it, you know, you're going, you're going to go forward and, and do, or you should anyhow, go forward and do an effective, uh, credible investigation, thorough investigation, because it's not just the anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA that's going to concern you. Uh, even, you know, and remember, Hoskins is really mostly an issue for foreign companies and foreign individuals, not for um, U.S. companies and U.S. individuals. But even if you're a foreign company, if you get that kind of allegation and you have enough of a nexus with the United States to be at risk, I think you do the investigation because things happen. I mean, things pop up. Odd little transactions pop up or travel pops up that all of a sudden the government has enough of a, of a hook for a jurisdiction. And if you're a foreign company that's an issuer, or have a shareholder, a substantial shareholder who's an issuer who itself might have it be, be uh, viewed as, as having risk, you're going to have to be aware of the SEC and the DOJ on the books and records side. And then you add on to that 
the uh, you know if you're a foreign company that has a, a presence in the UK and uh, whatever a substantial uh, connection to the UK means under the Bribery Act, you have a risk there. And they have um, the concept of associated person, which sort of takes you out of the agency law question that we were just talking about. And then we're seeing more and more enforcement actions just elsewhere. Uh, you know, this year, for instance, uh, you know, we saw one of the first cases that actually involved, you know, uh, public and active prosecution by the French authorities of a of one of their own companies in a bribery case. Uh, you know, Germany has been active. Uh, Italy has been active. We're, we, Brazil has been active. And we're seeing as, as an offshoot of Lava Jato, you know, more and more corruption investigations in South America. So the risk of enforcement is not just here, it's, it's, it's worldwide. And I think if you have an allegation, you're not going to be laser focused on the elements of the FCPA in determining whether to conduct an internal investigation. So the French case you mentioned that you touched on earlier, Society Generale, do you or does the firm see that as possibly heralding the emergence of France as an important global anti-corruption authority, investigator and enforcement uh, uh, location? Well, it would be about time if they were. <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, um, and and uh, I, I had a lot of fun making fun of France. Uh, you know, for for many years. Difficulty sometimes with with civil law uh, countries in general is is knowing what they've charged, who they've charged, and what the ultimate result was. What what we're seeing in France though is a bit of convergence. Uh, the establishment of a DPA system, which they never had before, the um, the public announcement of a case against a uh, one of their national champions in this case, uh, you know, is 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 significant. It's a significant development that uh, has been you know too long in the in the offing, quite frankly. Uh, you know, that one of the reasons why, in my view, the DOJ in particular has just has brought cases that greatly expand, expanded, perhaps beyond the scope of the statute, uh, the provisions of DD3, and uh, is, is because they were concerned that there was not enough of a political and, uh, and, and governmental will to bring cases in countries such as, as, as France. I mean, if you look at the history of FCPA enforcement, you'll see a lot of cases against French companies where the jurisdiction isn't always, sometimes it was, you know, it was clearer than others, but it was clear to me, although I'm not sure my colleagues would admit it, that the DOJ really stretched to reach which reached companies in countries where they felt felt that there was not a sufficient enforcement regime. And this may be an evidence that France is 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 you know the French prosecutors anyhow have caught the bug and they realize that there's merit in these cases, both uh, you know both from enforcing the law, which they. So one of the other uh, highlights from 2018 noted in the report was really the continuing trend of updating various enforcement policies. Uh, I would even maybe step back to uh, late November 2017, where we had the announcement of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. But certainly in 2018, in May, we saw the anti-piling on policy. In July, there was a policy incorporating mergers and acquisitions safe harbor into the new corporate enforcement policy. Then we had uh, in October a policy on, uh, excuse me, an updated policy on corporate monitors. And finally, uh, in uh, late November, uh, Rod Rosenstein announced uh, some slight changes or some changes, I should say, to the Yates memo. How do you see all of that playing out? 
there's two parts to this. One is an effort to align policy with practice. So where, where I see in the, the no piling on uh, uh, policy from earlier this year or the uh, modifications to uh, the Yates memo, which is now in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, and to some extent in the, mon- the, the, the monitorship uh, memo, is really an effort to say, look, we, we are, this is what we do. And if we have previous policy documents out there that don't you know, completely conform to this, we want to make sure that they do align. And, and you know, the Yates memo had uh, you know, almost a bi- binary approach to cooperation. Either you, you give us everything and everyone, or, you're not co- or you don't get cooperation credit. What the, what the changes recognize is that sometimes the corporation just can't, either because it's, ban- it's prohibited by foreign law, data protection, or um, bank secrecy, or because uh, you know the evidence just isn't there to get down to the very you know to the person who with the bag man. If you give as much as you can, you ought to get cooperation credit, and that's what I think they they recognize now. It doesn't mean that. It, I mean, it, it's clear to me that this is not a from a compliance for, uh, propose, uh, proposition or from a defense counsel or a, a corporate counsel conducting investigation that you get to choose what you give the government. I mean, you, the government still expects you to give everything that you have that you're permitted to give. And they'll make the decision. Is this a subs- Is this someone who had a substantive involvement? Is this a person we want to charge or can charge? It's not that you get to make that decision. So I don't think that the, those changes are, are actually that significant. I think it just reflects practice that sometimes the government, you know, a company just can't do everything, and the government understands that, and then they they modified you know some of the language in the eights, in what was the eights memo to to reflect that the no piling on part. I mean, this is an issue. You know, we've argued with government in the in a number of cases, and and I think that they do take the position. They do believe that they are fair in our in, in their. Uh, determination of penalties and how they share them. And certainly, you know, we've seen sharing of p- penalties with other agencies, you know, crediting, collect- often even with foreign uh, enforcement agencies, such as in the Odebrecht and Brascom cases and, and in the uh, Petrobras case, where, you know, the, the government will, will determine a fine, but then credit a penalty that's paid to the Brazilian authorities or the Dutch authorities or, or, or so on, or the French authorities. What, what the no piling on uh, policy says is, you know, that's, that's what we should be doing. Uh, the problem, of course, is if you're in a case that has multiple agencies, is it, is it really a fair allocation? Are they going to credit all penalties paid to all uh, other agencies, and how do they decide who gets to keep what? What no piling on ought to mean is that if there is another agency with equal equity in a matter or even greater equity in a matter, you know, should the DOJ stand down and, and, and let that other agency or that other uh, enforcement authority or another foreign country really do the case, even if that means that the DOJ doesn't get a stat or they don't get uh, you know, any, any fines. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that the policy 
leaves lots of room for the government to move. I mean, it's not it's not a uh, determinative policy in the sense that you can just plug things in and get an outcome. It's still discretionary uh, at the at the government level, at the DOJ level. The, what I wanted to end, uh, Philip, was asking you: Were there really any any other general trends or anything else from sort of 2018 that stuck out for you that uh, uh, you think will be significant moving forward? You know, quite frankly, I didn't see 2018 as as you know like a watershed year. <laughs> It's what was it, you know what was interesting is that you know it, it fits and starts, but they got there at the end. They got their numbers back up. They, they certainly did some uh, large cases uh, uh, in in the middle, and, and that may be indicative of where 2019 is going to go. I mean, I think you know my analysis, my you know reading of the tea leaves has been that the drop in cases over the past couple of years was more a reflection of the lack of presidentially confer- or sen- uh, uh, congressionally confirmed uh, uh, executives at the DOJ and, and elsewhere that made it more difficult to get the cases approved, settlements approved, because you, know, you had people on acting positions and people who were, um, you know, sort of reluctant to take steps, you know, knowing that there was someone coming down the road who eventually would be confirmed and would want to be that, in a position to make decisions. I think at this point, you know, with the uh, criminal division having a confirmed AAG, more people being confirmed in their positions, uh, either you know, or, or made permanent rather than acting, I think uh, some of that some of that flow is going to you know uh, start up again, and we're going to see more cases uh, coming out uh, of the DOJ in in, in the next year. Um, I did read recently that someone from the SEC, uh, you know, was was commenting that they their head counts down and therefore they were going to focus their you know, resources on on particular types of uh, individuals, uh, such as gatekeepers, attorneys, accountants, financial officers. So all of that, to me, indicates that 2019 may be a very interesting year, uh, perhaps more interesting than 2018. <laughs> Uh, the things that that I've observed, and I, I wanted to ask you, with from your perspective as both a, a former prosecutor in the fraud section and, and in private practice for some time, is that uh, certainly uh, with some of the updated policy changes we saw this year that align more with the practice, I see the department really. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't know if listening to people is the right word, but uh, or the right phrase, but I see them making adjustments. Uh, to policies and procedures uh, that people like you and I would talk about. And I would, in addition to the piling on or anti-piling on, the uh, safe harbor for mergers and acquisitions, that was first brought up in the 2012 FCPA guidance. And I think uh, people were really concerned about potentially buying an FCPA violation, and the DOJ laid out a way to ameliorate that concern. And now they've put the uh, mergers and acquisition under the new corporate enforcement policy. Uh, do you have that same sort of observation, or is it something different? No, I, 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 I do have that. I, I agree with you. I think those of us, you know, regardless of our political stripes, have you know, who have been on the dark side for for, for you know since we left the government, and and those who never were in the government have been critical of some decisions made by the DOJ. Uh, you know, that seemed to be, you know, perhaps just bringing, bringing a corporate case where, the, where you would have to ask yourself, well, what, would the, what should the corporation have done? Uh, 
you know, if it did effective due diligence before uh, a merger, but people lied to it or it just didn't find it because it wasn't, you know, it was an isolated case. But then you find it afterwards. What exactly are you punishing the corporation for? I mean, there's no question in my mind that you, sh- you know, and you know that it's not a question of a legal defense that you bought a new company and therefore there's no liability that la- that it carries over from the old company. I mean, that'd be just too much of a loophole for extinguishing liability. But if you have a, a company that did good faith work and and just inherited a problem, bought a case. Then there, then there ought to be some uh, way that you recognize that, uh, and, and I think that's what you know. We we had criticized uh, DOJ and the SEC to some extent for for not recognizing reality, just sort of putting on twenty twenty hindsight and saying, "Oops, you know, well, you got it, you got to pay for it." I think there is a tone within this administration that uh, you know that, that tends to focus more on being business friendly and 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 emphasizes the pol- parts of the policies that were already in place and and emphasize, you know as to that the ultimate detriment uh you know effective uh deterrent is to prosecute individuals and therefore you see things like i think the FCPA corporate um uh, prosecution policy which you know grew out of the previous um pilot program but you see that you see the no piling on you see um, more of a uh, acknowledgement in the monitor uh, uh, memo that you know companies may not need a mo- monitor if they've demonstrated that they learned their lesson and are you know implementing controls on their own, and and so and, and then in the Yates in the Yates memo to, or the you know the amendments to the uh, Yates memo, I, I think there's an overall tone today. In, you know, there's a pendulum that, that swings back and forth between the corporation, you know, going after corporations and getting big fines and using that as the way to change corporate culture and swing and individuals saying, look, you know, the individuals are the ones who, who acted with criminal intent and they should be prosecuted. From the original holder memo, we always insisted you got to do both. And and that's been the consistent policy of the department ever since. But you know, over time, administration to administration, assistant attorney general to assistant attorney general, fraud section chief to fraud section chief, you see, you know, more of an emphasis one way or the other. And I think definitely in this administration, although the you know there's, the department is not you know averse to getting a big fine in an appropriate case, they say there does seem to be more of an emphasis on, on getting the evidence and being able to prosecute the individuals. Well, Philip, as always, this has just been a fascinating discussion for me. Uh, once again, thank you and the firm for putting out the digest. We're going to link to the digest and the new site uh, in our show notes and frankly, look forward to continuing the conversation. Well, you're very welcome. And we'll talk again in six months or a year, I'm sure. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. We're going to link to the Sherman and Sterling 2019 FCPA Digest, as well as its more comprehensive, complete digest in the show notes. So check those out. I know you'll find them interesting. I hope you'll join me again next week where we have another FCPA compliance-related topic. This podcast, the FCPA Compliance Report, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.